Hey, good morning, everyone. We are continuing our study in the book of Daniel, and uh, I've been thinking about Daniel chapter 8 uh, as the Hanukkah chapter of the Bible, and uh, I guess we'll get into that a little bit more as we go on, but Hanukkah, the that celebration celebrates events that happened in between the Old and the New Testament. Well, here we are in the Old Testament talking about Daniel, and yet he has a vision, and he looks towards the future, and he sees uh, the events uh, of Hanukkah. So uh, look forward to that as we go along. So uh, there's a lot of prophecy in this uh, chapter of Daniel uh, but a lot of it is now history to us, so we have a lot of fulfilled prophecy. Um, and I'm going, going to go through this sermon kind of out of order. Normally, we read through the verses consecutively. I'm going to read them a little bit out of order because I want to read kind of the vision, part of the vision, and then the interpretation at the same time. So you'll see that as we get into it. So I'm just going to I'm just going to jump right in uh, to it, the vision of the ram and the goat, Daniel chapter 8. So I would like to read uh, verses 1 through 2, and and then I'm going to read verses 15 through 19. Now, I think um, somebody pointed out to me that the bulletins say Daniel uh, 8 verses 1 through 30, and there aren't actually 30 verses in Daniel chapter 8. There's only 27. So I, I got kind of scared that I had missed three verses and was going to have to pass those off to Josh uh, next week. But uh, I guess I'm okay. So uh, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision... And when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now down to verse 15 here. Um, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called Gabriel, Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So we don't see it in our uh, English Bibles, but Daniel actually changes languages here uh, in his writing. He switches from Aramaic to Hebrew, and that's kind of an indication to us that, um, that these words uh, are for a Jewish audience. Now, the timing of the vision is two years after the vision that we just studied last week in chapter 7. Uh, so two years later, he has this, uh, this other vision. And he's still in the reign of uh, Belshazzar. He's still uh, part of the Babylonian Empire here. This is actually uh, 12 years earlier than the writing on the wall 
scene that Dave covered for us a couple weeks ago in chapter 5. So uh, again, this Daniel isn't chronological, so to speak. Uh, so we're coming back to uh, when the, the Babylonians are still in charge. So this vision takes place in about 551 BC. Now, I mentioned uh, I had the sermon on chapter 1, and I kind of did a little intro, and I mentioned that there is some dispute about when Daniel was written. Did Daniel really write this book? And the reason they uh, dispute it is because there is so much prophecy in Daniel that is fulfilled, and and the skeptics, the people that don't believe in the supernatural, will say, well, that can't have actually been written beforehand. It must have been written afterward. And so that's why they say Daniel wrote in like the 100s BC and not in the 500s BC. Um, so the setting of this vision is the city of Susa. Now, Susa is about 200 miles from Babylon. If you think of the map of the world today, uh, Babylon would be in Iraq and Susa would be in Iran. Now, maybe Daniel had visited there uh, in his duties for the king, and so he recognizes Susa in his vision. It was a significant city. Uh, in the following Persian Empire, uh, it was a royal residence. Uh, Xerxes had built a, a palace in Susa about a 100 years after this vision. Uh, that famous document, the Code of Hammurabi, was discovered in the ruins of Susa in the early 1900s. And Susa is a, a biblically significant city. Uh, the book of Esther was set in the city of Susa about 80 years after this vision. And Nehemiah was a cupbearer cup to Artaxerxes about 100 years after this vision as well. So Daniel uh, experiences this vision and he seeks to understand it. He seeks to know, what is God trying to tell me here? And just that was just a quick reminder to me, you know, do we have that same kind of curiosity to know God's word, to seek to understand uh, what God is trying to tell us in his word? So uh, Daniel gets this visitor. Uh, it appears like a man, and another voice kind of off, off stage, maybe God himself, names this man Gabriel, and he orders Gabriel to give Daniel understanding. Now, Gabriel is an angel. Uh, I believe this may be the first mention of Gabriel in the Bible. He's mentioned in the New Testament, in Luke as well. Uh, he, as, we, uh, as many of us learned in Sunday school, there are two named angels in the Bible. Gabriel's one of them. Who's the other one? Louder? Michael, Michael the archangel, yes, yes. So Daniel is overcome by this appearance of Gabriel, and he falls into this deep sleep. He must have just been overwhelmed, maybe by fear. He passes out. He feels the power of this being, um, his perfection and holiness even. He feels like the effects of God's presence even. And um, remember... Uh, that Daniel is, like I said, he's still in the Babylonian uh, kingdom. And so this vision he gets is of the future. And uh, we've talked about the four uh, powers, the four world empires, the Babylonians, uh, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. 
We've talked about those in the visions of uh, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Uh, This one uh, in Daniel 8 really focuses on that second power, the Persian Empire, and even more so the third power, the Greek Empire, and how it relates to the nation of Israel. So I want to read verses 3 through 4, which is uh, the first part of the vision, and then I want to read the interpretation of those verses in verse 20. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great." As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So we have the Medo-Persian Empire represented here. This is the empire that defeats Babylon. This is the empire that takes over that night of the writing on the wall with Belshazzar that happens 12 years after this vision takes place. Now, uh, the ram, the horns, uh, this uh, represents the Medes on one side and the Persians on the other side. We think of Darius the Mede. We think of Cyrus the Persian as examples of, of those leaders. And the Medes and the Persians, they have this alliance. Um, and then as time goes on, they really, they really merge together. And the Persian uh, part of this alliance becomes the stronger uh, part That's why the horn, the Persian horn, is the higher horn. Now, Eric mentioned last week that there was, uh, there's kind of a, uh, I don't know if rumor is the right word, but there's kind of the the thought that the Persian army may have been two million people strong. Um, And their symbol in battle was the ram. They had the ram's head on on their coins. And so Persia, they expand, they go north, they go south, they go west. They didn't go any farther east. They, uh, they just went the other directions, but they were an unstoppable uh, force. Now, uh, Isaiah makes this prediction about the Persians even 150 years before Daniel in Isaiah 45, 1 through 7. And this is a, an amazing, amazing prophecy Isaiah actually names Cyrus by name. And I'll just read verse 1 of that, Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. What an amazing prophecy to actually name somebody by name long before uh, they were born. And so uh, think again to uh, Dave Kern's sermon on the writing on the wall here and think about what's going through Daniel's mind as Belshazzar calls him and, and as Daniel walks through the interpretation of the writing on the wall, Daniel is thinking back 12 years ago to this vision and he's realizing that the ram that he saw in the vision, that day has come, the day is here. Uh, he is there to witness Babylon's defeat at the hand of the Persians. 
Okay, I want to read uh, verses, what is that, 5 through 8, and then uh, 21 through 22. So this is the third kingdom we're going to look at here. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And then the interpretation of the goat in verse 21. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which the four others arose, four kings shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So we have the goat now, and this goat comes from the west. This goat represents uh, the Greek empire, and uh, the goat comes about 200 years after this vision. So that's kind of the time frame there, uh, kind of in the early 300s BC. Now, this would have been difficult for Daniel to picture. Uh, Greece existed at the time Daniel's uh, experiencing this vision, but they were nothing. They were nothing at the time. So it's really difficult for Daniel to even understand how could Greece become a world empire. Now, the horns of the goat, normally there's two horns to a goat, uh, but this goat just has one conspicuous horn, and it represents this king of, of Greece, It's their first king, and of course, you can probably guess who it is. Uh, Eric said last week, it's Alexander the Great. He saw himself as great. He saw himself as divine. He was a military genius, and he's got a grudge against Persia. Uh, The little Greek empire before Alexander took the throne, hardly worth mentioning. Persia had attacked them, had defeated them, and so Alexander takes the throne. He's not happy. That's why the the vision says the goat was enraged and ran against the ram with powerful wrath. And so notice also the, the speed of the goat. It crosses the earth without touching the ground. This is just a picture of the expansion, uh, the quick expansion, the quick conquering that the Greek empire did. Now, Alexander had a small army. It was only 35,000 or so troops on the field, but they were lightning fast. Okay, so uh, comedic relief here. I want to share a verse from Daniel 8 that's been taken out of context. So this is how we should not use our Bibles, but this church did that. So uh, a few years ago, the Rams played the Patriots in the Super Bowl, And, of course, the Patriots' best player was Tom Brady, and Tom Brady is known as the GOAT, the greatest of all time, the GOAT. So no one could rescue the ram from the GOAT's power, 
Daniel 8, 7, go Pats, right? So do not use your Bibles this way. So uh, in the Persian army, this force uh, from the Persians that came out to battle the Greeks, there was about 100,000 footmen, about 10,000 on horse, and they even had mounted elephants that they took into the field. But the Greek army, they were, they were smaller, but they were better trained, they were well disciplined, and so the Greeks win decisively. They have these decisive battles. Uh, Persia has some bad luck. They have a fleet of ships uh, out in the Mediterranean Sea, a fleet of 300, and they all uh, go down in a storm off of Cyprus. And then there's a battle at Thermopylae where the Persians, with their large army, they try to go through this small, tight pass, and they lose 20,000 soldiers in this battle, and the Greeks only lost 100 And so Alexander attacks in 335 or 334 BC uh, is when he starts to engage with the the Persians. And by 332 or 331, maybe three years later, Alexander has won. This is a rapid defeat of this huge swath of territory. Uh, That's why you see, again, this goat never touching the ground. And so uh, the Greek Empire ends up being... Uh, 1.5 million square miles in size. Now, uh, like I said, uh, Eric mentioned Alexander last week, and the story about Alexander, which I'll mention again, that uh, Alexander, the story goes, wept because there was no more, there were no more kingdoms for him to conquer. He'd become a general at age 21. He had conquered the known world by age 26, and he dies at age 32 or 33. He dies in Babylon. He dies of malaria and alcoholism. It's 323 BC, and the great horn of the goat is broken. And so uh, Greece is left leaderless. There, there is no heir in place from Alexander. There's no succession plan. Um, And so uh, the vision describes this as the four horns that come out. Um, It's a perfect description of what actually happened. This leadership vacuum takes place. There's a power struggle that goes on for 20 years. And in the end, they cannot keep the kingdom of Greece together. The kingdom, the Greek empire, is divided. And it's divided into four. It's divided in... uh, into four different kingdoms represented by four generals of Alexander's army. Um, we, we, uh, even though Alexander's reign, I think it was like seven years where he had that whole kingdom together, that Greek culture really did spread. It spread throughout the known world and uh, the Greek language. That's the language of the New Testament. So, verses 9 through 14. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, 
and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So now we have this, out of those four horns, we have a little horn, a conspicuous little horn that comes out of this goat. So there is a new leader that arises out of one of the kingdoms of this divided Greek empire. It's about 150 years after Alexander, and the name of this leader is Antiochus IV. He's also known, he gave his name as Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the king of the Seleucid dynasty. And Epiphanes means illustrious one. And so his kingdom, the Seleucid dynasty, covers Syria and Iraq and Iran and parts of Turkey. And the capital city is Antioch. He's the eighth king in this dynasty. And he takes the throne about 175 BC. And he does it by murdering his brother. Now, uh, The Seleucid dynasty grows great. It grows to the south towards Egypt. It grows to the east towards Persia. And it grows to what the text calls the glorious land, which is Israel. And so at the mention of the glorious land, the focus uh, changes a little bit here. And it's going to, the vision's going to look at how this leader interacts with the nation of Israel. So Antiochus Epiphanes, he thinks of himself very highly. He mints coins that have his own image on them. The coins say Theos Epiphanes or God manifest. He calls himself the prince of hosts and he wants the worship for himself. He, he doesn't want Israel to worship God. He wants Israel to worship him. So he goes into Jerusalem and he replaces the high priest and he puts in his own high priest. Then, after that, he goes off and he heads down towards uh, Egypt, and he attacks Egypt. Now, there's a rumor that comes back to Israel that Antiochus has died. And so they hear this rumor, and they say, well, we don't want Antiochus's puppet priest here. We want our own priest back. So they try to replace uh, Antiochus's priest with their own. Antiochus is very much still alive. He hears this, he gets angry, and he takes out his anger on the people of Israel. He hates the Jews, and he's unwilling to let them worship their God. So, here are some of the things that Antiochus does. I just want to list them out here for us. He forbids circumcision. He forces the people to eat unclean meat. He stops the morning and evening burnt offering, this burnt offering that it um, pictures the presence of the Lord in the life of the nation of Israel. He stops that. He has the copies of the Torah burned. He destroys scripture. He throws truth to the ground, as the text says. 
he murders 100,000 Jews. Uh, in one three-day period, he kills 40,000 of them and captures 10,000 more. He erects a statue of Zeus in the temple. And not only does that he do that, but he makes the face of Zeus the face of himself. This is the original abomination of desolation. He sets up other idols in the temple. He sacrifices a pig on the altar and spreads the blood all around. He takes pig broth and he, he pours it over all the holy vessels in the temple. He requires the people to offer unclean animals as sacrifices, specifically pigs, under penalty of death. And he has humans sacrificed on the altar. All of this is done to prevent the Jews from worshiping God, from following the law. He elevates himself to the level of God, and he compels the Jews to worship him. He defiles the temple. He desecrates the temple. He persecutes the people mercilessly. This is like the definition of anti-Semitism. And he names himself Epiphanes, like I mentioned, illustrious one. The Jews had a different name for Antiochus. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. Now, there's definitely spiritual warfare going on here. Antiochus was probably demon-possessed. And in this vision, we see the host of heaven, the stars. These are the people of God being defeated. And we see this man taking the worship that's meant for God, putting himself in the place of the prince of hosts. And this is where the Hanukkah story comes in. The Jews obviously could not tolerate this. They were so upset. And their temple had been desecrated. Their way of life had been dramatically altered, and so they revolt. They would revolt against uh, this Greek Seleucid dynasty. They revolt against Antiochus. And this guy, Judas Maccabeus, he's a Jewish priest. He drives out uh, this uh, Seleucid army out of Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. He refurbishes the temple. He restores the temple. He resumes daily sacrifices. And... Uh, by doing that, there is a new feast inaugurated, this uh, Hanukkah, as we call it, the Festival of Lights, or the Feast of Dedication. This is not an Old Testament feast, because, the, again, these events take place in between the Old and New Testament. But it is a festival that is mentioned in the New Testament. It's mentioned in John chapter 10, verse 22. Now, verse 14 uh, of our passage this morning is very interesting. It mentions the length of the desecration. It says 2,300 evenings and mornings before the temple would be restored to its rightful state. Now, we know pretty well the end date of those 2,300 days. It was either December 25th, 165, or December 25th, 164 BC. This is where Judas restores that worship restores sacrifices, rededicates the temple to the Lord. But it's the beginning date of these 2300, day, or 2300 that is in question. Is it days? Um, and if it is days, it's from when the Jewish sacrifices stopped 2300 days earlier. 
or it could be 1,150 evenings and 1,150 mornings, which would be 1,150 days, uh, from when the unclean animals started being sacrificed at the temple and Antiochus required the Jews to worship him. So we don't really know kind of where the, that 2300 starts. Now I want to make a side note here, which I found interesting. Uh, there is an example of misusing these 2300, uh, 2300 in, um, in modern, um, religion, I guess. Uh, in Seventh day Adventism, their founder was a man named William Miller, and he takes this 2300 and he says this means 2300 years. And so he starts this count of 2300 years from the day that Cyrus decrees uh, that the temple be rebuilt. And so he calculates the second coming of the Lord Jesus to be October 22nd, 1844. So uh, he didn't quite get that one right. Uh, but that's an, another example of kind of taking prophecy too far and trying to pinpoint a date with some of these things. So Antiochus, what happens to him? What happens, what's the final result on him? Well, two years uh, after the restoration of the temple, Antiochus dies in Persia. It's 163 B.C., he dies of a painful disease of the bowels. He dies insane and in mental anguish. And 15 years after that, in 146 BC, the Greek Empire comes to an end as Rome defeats them. Verses 23 through 25. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, the a king, a bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. So we have a little bit of a different tone here in these verses. Um, this is a key prophecy in the book of Daniel. It does apply to Antiochus, but there does seem to be another fulfillment in mind. There's this near view that's about 400 years from when Daniel has this uh, vision. And then there does seem to be kind of a far, far distant view that looks almost towards history's end. Uh, and it seems to be a description of the Antichrist, that future king that rises to power in, in the tribulation and defies the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So Antiochus is a forerunner. He's a precursor. He's a type of the Antichrist. He's really the Antichrist of the Old Testament. And so we get this preview of the future Antichrist. We, because we can see what Antiochus did in history, it helps us to know something about the pattern of the future Antichrist to come. And just like Antiochus comes to this horrific end 
uh, that wasn't by human hands, the Antichrist, too, will come to an end, not by human hands. So what do we learn about the Antichrist? I've got another list here, my second of three lists. What do we learn about the Antichrist from these verses? Well, he has a bold face. He's got a fierce countenance. He's great in his own mind. He is not a humble man. He understands riddles. He's very intelligent. He's able to solve difficult problems. He has great power. In fact, he's got the power of Satan behind him. He will have initial success. He's going to prosper for a time. He has a peaceful appearance. He's a cunning person, a deceitful person. He's skilled at intrigue. He's, he will act in deception and betrayal. He will lead many astray. He will oppose God. He will stand up to God boldly and gleefully. He will destroy saints. He's an adversary to God. He's an adversary to God's saints. He's an adversary to the nation of Israel. He will rise up against God. He will rise up against the Prince of Princes. He will rise up against the Lord Jesus. And it's not going to go well for him. He's going to be broken. He's going to be judged. So we get this little picture here in Daniel chapter 8 about, uh, about the Antichrist. Our final verses. Verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So um, Daniel has this vision way, way into the future, and he's told to seal it up. And that means he's told to write it down. He's told to preserve it. And so he does that. And we can see in these verses the effect that it has on Daniel the man. He sees his beloved nation uh, who are in exile right now. He sees them in the future suffering the severe persecution. They have a difficult future ahead of them. He sees his people defeated in some sense. He sees... The temple, which didn't even exist, you know, as Daniel's seen this vision, uh, as Daniel, in Daniel's time, it doesn't even exist yet. And yet he sees that the temple's going to be rebuilt, but it's going to be defiled. Uh, so he's sick. He's overcome with emotion. You can see, uh, you know, Daniel's whole life goal was for God's kingdom to flourish. And so this vision would have been very disturbing and, uh, and probably given him a sense of hopelessness. He just has a pain and a passion for others, other people who didn't even exist yet. He cares about them. And he sees these figures, Antiochus and the Antichrist. He sees evil personified and evil in a lot of ways victorious, even if it's just for a time. And so uh, just a public service announcement here. Uh, some of us sometimes, oh, I wish I had a vision from God. You know, Daniel's got this vision and it's very unpleasant. It's very, very painful for him. From our perspective today, we have a better vantage point than Daniel has. Uh, Much of this vision is past history, and so we can understand it more than he could. Um, 
Now, there's some components that are still future to us, but they do give us a picture, even if it's a fuzzy picture, even if we don't fully understand it. Because we have this fulfilled prophecy, we can get a clearer picture of what is to come. Okay, so I want to finish with just a couple applications. Uh, I know I've just been on a history rant for the last half hour, uh, but let's just finish with some applications for today. History is headed somewhere. God, uh, the theme of Daniel, God is sovereign. He is in charge. He has a plan, and he has a timeline, and he uh, is going to uh, handle this world the way he's going to do it. God's purpose today is with the church. God is working today in the worldwide church. And at some point, he's going to be done with the church, and he's going to call us out of this world. And when he does that, the focus is going to return to the nation of Israel. America, the United States, is Babylon. We are Persia. We are Greece, and we are Rome. We are the dominant nation on this planet, and we shouldn't be complacent in that. We are the greatest world power, but that world power can end any time. I know I've noticed how susceptible we are to charismatic leaders, right? Um, we can be very susceptible to that, to following someone uh, that isn't going to take us in the right direction. Someone that's cunning and deceitful with lots of charisma. So we have to be watching out for that as a nation. We are Babylon. We are Greece. We will be judged based on how we treat God's people, how we treat the nation of Israel, how we treat fellow believers. We will be judged based on that. I imagine when Antiochus reaches judgment day, it is not going to go well for him. It's going to be rough for how he treated Israel. The United States as a nation, I truly do believe that the United States has been blessed as a nation because we are a friend to Israel. Um, so we will be judged on how we treat each other, how we treat the nation of Israel. Prophecy is pain. The future is discouraging. There is pain to come, but it must happen. There will be final joy. Evil will lose and suffering will end. But in the meantime, prophecy is pain. Endure day by day. Daniel had this vision, and he saw a lot. He saw joys and pains, and he saw it and experienced it all at once. And it was too much for him to bear. Uh, we can't handle all of that future all at once. We would not want that vision of the pain and suffering of the future to, to be on us all at once. But we can we have been built. We can endure day by day with God's help. We can endure the trials and tribulations as they come up. We can be successful over the long haul. We can be victorious as we walk with the Lord. Finally, go about the king's business. Daniel is suffering this immense spiritual turmoil and what does he do? He gets up and he resumes his day job. We all have trials and sufferings in this world. We're all anxious about the future. 
but we have duties to perform for the Lord. We have work to do for him. So let's do that. Let's get up in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering. Let's get up. Let's do that. Let's do the work of the Lord. That work is not in vain. Let me pray, and uh, we'll have the worship team come up, and we'll uh, sing some praises to the Lord. Lord, we do thank you so much for our time this morning. Thank you for uh, this example of Daniel and uh, just his... um, the suffering that he endured to give us this picture of the past, this picture of the future, Lord. Uh, we know that there is pain to come. We know that there is uh, there are prophecies to be fulfilled that contain much judgment. Uh, and yet, Lord, we can put our hope in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. We know that ultimately, finally, you will be victorious, Lord, and we long for that day. Lord, we do, in the meantime, we pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, Lord. But as we wait for that day where you will take this church out of the world, we do uh, ask that you would walk with us day by day and moment by moment. Help us to be faithful servants, faithful ambassadors, uh, faithful witnesses for the cause of Christ in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.